HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to heritageradionetwork.org, a nonprofit member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. And before we get started today, um, I just want to make a little note that all throughout the month of May, we're going to be doing a membership drive. Um, So if you want to go to the website, HeritageRadioNetwork.org and click donate, you'll actually be able to uh, sign up for uh, for membership. I was actually a member even before uh, before I started the radio show. It's really fantastic. Uh, at any level of membership, you'll be able to receive a monthly e-newsletter, advanced uh, invites to special events, uh, special discounts uh, with your membership card. And then there are various levels and you get all sorts of other really great goodies uh, at each one of the levels. So check it out uh, at heritageradionetwork.org and click donate to become a member. Um, and now uh, to get started, we have, uh, I'm uh, extremely excited, actually a really good friend of mine uh, on the show today. Uh, her name is Laura Wickowitz. She's the beverage director at La Conda Verde, uh, one of just the most popular restaurants. I absolutely love it. It's uh, it's one of those places where it just has this great, really upbeat downtown uh, vibe. It's truly one of the most popular restaurants in, in the city. Andrew Carmelini, who's the chef, I feel like he's constantly in the news. He's constantly doing something exciting and you're kind of able to do something that I, that I admire quite a bit. It's Kind of a bigger, really popular restaurant where you do lots and lots of covers every night, but at an extraordinarily high quality. I think I went uh, twice in uh, in two weeks because I, I think I went with my mom and and my girlfriend, and then we loved it so much. The next week we brought her parents when they were in town. But anyway, Laura, thank you so much for being on the show. It's it's exciting to have you here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's so fun to be here. 
you know, we, we go back a while. I've, I've known for for a while that you've had an interest in Italian wines. Um, before Locanda, you worked at at uh, Fig and Olive, where you were the beverage director across multiple restaurants. Um, That's right. That was a, a small program um, where we focused only on French, Italian, and Spanish wine. And um, I think getting to work side by side with those three sort of micro regions, well, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But anyway, I I got to explore Italy comparatively to the rest of Europe. And it was really um, exciting to be one of the few sommeliers I know where, where in my mind, Italy triumphed over France. And that's not to say I don't love French wine, but I think that that love started there. Um, It was a real value-driven menu. And when you're looking for wines at that $40 $40 restaurant bottle price point. I think Italy really just shines. And what, what uh, drew you to Italian wines? Um, you know, the, there, of course, is an element of being Italian-American. I think those were the wines that were on my table growing up. They were the first wines I was exposed to. They were the wines my parents were excited about drinking. Um, but then I, I do think it was being in that professional element of, of trying to find value-driven wines for the fig and olive list that really opened my eyes to different grape varieties that I had never heard of. And to realize that if you have, you know, just, um, well, maybe that, that $50 breaking point on a bottle of wine in a restaurant, that uh, a Tribbiano from Lugana may actually be um, more beautiful than a sort of average level Sancerre or something like that. And so um, it was just eye-opening to me. And what do you mean by this $50 breaking point? Do you mean that at once you get to $50, you open up the world to another level of, of quality? Uh, you know, I think I think that I think that if you have, I, th- I think that um, modestly priced wine in Italy is more readily available than perhaps I see in France. I think you have to work a little harder. I'll say, um, and some of that probably is marketing and popularity. But uh, fifty dollars in a restaurant in Burgundy doesn't quite get you as far as it does, um, you know, in some of the lesser known white. Grapes. The best Tribbiano you ever could drink, perhaps, is $50, yeah. where you're just breaking into some of those white wines in the other regions. And I think, of course, there are exceptions. You know, I'm, I'm painting with very large, wide brushstrokes here. But I think that you, um, I think you have a lot to work with in the, in the lower price point in Italy. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree, and, and that's what drew me also to Italian wines. I have to say, though, I, I think that in the Loire Valley and maybe in Beaujolais are two sure. places in France where you can get at $50, like a, a pretty Absolutely, especially wine. if you're willing to step outside Sancerre, and I do agree with that. I mean, I've had wines from, you know, Quince that you'd never heard of, and you're like, whoa, that's incredible. Of course, I, I, of course. Do you find that guests uh, is Sancerre like one of those wines that guests like keep asking for? Yeah, what is up with that? I, I don't know. Ask for that all the time. <laughs> it's true, Sancerre, and and this season more than ever, like big is back. Everyone's asking for mm. full-bodied California wines, and it's not something I've seen in the last three years. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Yeah, but it's, it's, you know, it's been that I'm a, a recurring theme on the show that you know that every everyone's been taught distributors we've had on winemakers that yeah everyone's drinking lighter everyone's drinking more old world but uh, I, I I I have I think seen that a pendulum bit of that. is swinging back it's just swinging just back. a little bit yeah. I don't know. So, but before working in the uh, uh, New York restaurant scene, you went to the CIA um, and studied yes. to be in the back of the house. I was I was. back of the house driven. I had no intention of being um, in wine world until I went to culinary school. And actually, the the week that I was graduating, I had a job with, um, oh, now I'm going to, oh, I'm embarrassed to blank on his name. 
anyway, I apologize, chef. But the chef at Oceana, Ben Pollinger, there ben it is, Pollinger. told me that um, I went to him and said, chef, I'm, I'm debating doing this fellowship in, in the front of the house. I know I just promised you two years. And, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited about wine, but I also think that this is an incredible job offer to be starting at a great restaurant in New York. Um, this was back when Oceana was in its old space, not in the newly renovated restaurant. And um, and he said, because he is a CIA graduate and really an advocate for the students, you know, if you do your fellowship, study wine, if you want your job in the kitchen in a year, I'll give it to you. And so I said, oh, all right, thanks, chef. And I kind of got out of my agreement with him, and I went back to the culinary and taught um, front of the house service for a year and was able to start ticking away at those WSCT accreditations and really never picked my knives up again. And you never went back to Ben? I never, I mean, I've seen him since and and I've said, thank you, know, thanks, chef. I think I made the right choice, (laughs) but um, I never did go back to the kitchen. You know, if you had gone to Ben, it would have been another one of these random, crazy coincidences because my first job in any restaurant was at Union Square Cafe when Ben Pollinger was the no executive, <laughs> when he was the chef de cuisine, and I was in the kitchen. Very cool. And it was very cool. And I didn't know you were in the kitchen. Yeah. I didn't, I mean, I didn't last very long, <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, it was, uh, it was a very, very eye-opening experience, and uh, I think, like you, I'm much more drawn to mm-hmm. the front of house experience, but Ben, I mean, re- just, uh, what a great guy, and so, uh, dedicated to quality he yeah, like, yep. it's just Truly. incredible the his his eye for quality his his passion for it and uh he just such a great guy i it's agree been, he doesn't get the recognition he deserves that's uh anyone if you're listening and you haven't heard of chef ben bollinger we're <laughs> we're toasting him today yeah uh, we're toasting ben bollinger <laughs> in the drink he's just uh he's the man and uh Absolutely. you know if you're in midtown that you know I, sometimes i think of midtown as not, not having too many Great That's restaurants, right. but Oceana is definitely like what great place to sit at the bar, get some get some raw food, raw Absolutely. fish, or even a composed dish. It's really delicious. So okay, so you you did the the front mm-hmm. of house. You did a year. Um, you were teaching. How do you go from back of house to teaching front of house classes? Did you have some experience before school? No, I really didn't. Um, the The fellowship for front of the house at the CIA because. Um, up to that point, there really aren't a lot of classes in dining room service that you really are. It's just a few, you know, an introductory class to dining room and then an advanced. It's two little stints. Um, I think I think it's based somewhat on potential. You know, they see people with an interest, but a lot of it is based on your wine scores and wine classes. And I always did well there just because I was interested, not because I thought of it as a career aspiration necessarily. So um, you're able to link up with those fellows uh, if if they see the potential there, that's more how those classes, I think the back of the house fellowships are a bit more competitive in that sense that you really have had to establish yourself. Um, but I had a nice relationship with the professor at that time and, and just seemed really excited about wine. And so that was, that was how that worked. Um, and it was great. I mean, it was, it was one year, every three weeks you had a new group of students and you were teaching them how to open a bottle of wine and decant wine and, um, you know, you really get that eye for the dining room detail when every three weeks you're teaching people how to set a table and how to lay out linens. And from there, it just seemed like a natural progression into Restaurant Danielle. And that was that was how I broke into New York. Restaurant, wow, what a way to break into New York. <laughs> what a way to break into New York. Uh, before we get to Danielle, I want to ask a little bit more about CIA. I mean, anyone no, I know who... Uh, who's been to CIA has, has spoken extremely highly of it. Uh, Catherine, who's uh, my business partner, she's the mm-hmm. pastry chef at the restaurant. She, uh, she was, uh, she's a CIA grad and, and she just, she just loves it. Do you think that it's something that is useful for someone in the front of house or do would Absolutely. you have rather? Okay. 
Absolutely. I think um, I think going through that program gave me such confidence in in just in a restaurant atmosphere, and additionally understanding how dishes work. I know that I am a better sommelier because of pairing wine and food because of an understanding of what's on the plate of how. If a chef is building a sauce, the levels of acid that might go into that sauce. Um, I mean, we don't serve wine without food. We serve wine with food. And so understanding that is you're really seeing the whole picture. And um, you're just more confident in the dining room. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're that middleman between the, the diner and the chef. And if you have an understanding of what's going on back there, everything transitions better. I think that's a good point. So tell us about your first, uh, your first experience in New York at Danielle. <laughs> sure. So um, <laughs> New York City is a tough city. Uh, if you if you have never worked in the front of the house of a restaurant, no one will hire you in the front of the house of a restaurant. So like many young culinary students, I came out feeling kind of puffed up and ready, ready for the world, ready for my uh, first job as a wine director. And... <laughs> <laughs> And I had the scariest interview of my life ever with Daniel Jonas uh, coming out of culinary school. And, I mean, I was certainly not ready to be running an, a wine program. I was 23 years old. But, but I felt ready because I had been studying my maps of Burgundy, and I really felt ready. So uh, Daniel Jonas gives me this interview for a wine position at the restaurant uh, Danielle. Mostly, I'm sure, as a favor to my professor at CIA, frankly. And uh, and he has blank paper, and he has me drawing maps of burgundies and plugging in Grand Cru villages. I mean, this is this is not how most wine interviews go, I believe wow. me. <laughs> I've been easy on my interviews. Right? I had, he had me opening. I had to open three bottles of wine and blind taste with him and tell him my thoughts on the wines, which um, was a... Cabernet blend from Canada that I think I even said was Pacific Northwest, like where I pulled that from, but I remember him being kind of impressed with that. Um, you know, anyway, we, we delineated and he kind of said, so you, let me get this straight, though. You've never worked in a restaurant before, except in the back. And I said, no, of course not. And so he said, you can you can either, you know, join the wine team on a very, very entry level at, uh, at Bar Balloud, um which sounded to me more like a cocktail server, but but anyway, I'd be getting my hands on the wines by the glass. Or he said, you know, take take my advice and start at start at the very bottom and go to restaurant Danielle and learn what it is to be in a restaurant of the greatest caliber. So that's what I ended up doing. I went, I kind of put wine aside for now since I had never actually worked in a restaurant before, short of the kitchen, and I did. Well, I spent about nine months uh, as a as a back waiter at the restaurant Danielle. Um, and then, you know, very quickly from there, kind of tacked out into more managerial roles. But that was my first experience, was, uh, was serving bread and water at the restaurant. <laughs> but um, you, you, you have an eye for things there that you, you cannot cre- recreate that experience anywhere. If I had gone to a more casual establishment as a manager, which I, which I would have been qualified to do at that point, I mean, I had two college degrees but um i would never have been i wouldn't have had the eye and that's that that restaurant danielle i mirrored so much the training that cia was trying to impart i mean it was it was the perfect follow-up yeah you know we've had uh daniel Jonas on on the show here mm-hmm. i think it's uh, it's all come full circle now but it sounds like you made the uh it sounds like you made the right decision and your next job as your, or your first job as a manager in new york what was that um, I did, well, my, my first job as a manager in New York would have been Fig and Olive. I did a small stint in between 
Danielle and the Fig and Olive restaurant group at a restaurant called Dovetail on the Upper West Side, John Fraser's restaurant. And I was actually there for Magier, which is like an odd little <laughs> side swipe to my, <laughs> to my wine career. But, um, but I'd studied cheese in school. I mean, that felt almost, it was, that was like a middle position between kitchen and dining room somehow to be wheeling around the cheese cart and talking about cheese. So again, less than a year I was there, but that was a great, that was a great so job. They, I didn't have to give John job. a hard time, but they have a fromagier, like that, that your whole job is around cheese the whole night. You know, on, on certain nights you're a captain on the floor, but then, in the, you know, the rest of the time you're kind of the fromagier. It's one of those swing positions. But I got to go down to the Murray's Cheese Cobs and pick out all the cheese on the carts and do the staff trainings and, and wheel the cart around the dining room. It was really a blast. That's really fun. Mm-hmm. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> all right. So we're going to take a quick break um, and we're going to be back shortly on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Listening to Butterscotch by Taxstar on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. And we're back on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Just wanted to remind everyone that during the month of May, we're going to be doing our membership drive. Um, I definitely recommend everyone signing up to be a member. Uh, If you want to go to HeritageRadioNetwork.org and click on Donate, Uh, there are various different levels of membership. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and suggest doing the premium member for $250 where you'll get uh, lots of really cool things such as uh, our newsletter, you'll get invites to events, uh, discount membership card, um, and uh, you'll be able to also get a VIP backstage tour of our sick radio station uh, in the back of Roberta's, and it's awesome, and you should do that. Um, all right, so I'm here with Laura Wickowitz from uh, from Locanda Verde. We were getting a little bit about her history, but now I want to talk uh, about Locanda. It's one of the one of the most popular restaurants in New York City, and not only is it popular, but it's also extraordinarily high quality. It's a place that 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 I really love, uh, and I try to go there as often as possible. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with the wine program at Locanda. Sure. Um- Lacanda Verde's wine program, um, well, it's about a 150-bottle list. <laughs> I, never, I should have pre-thought about that. It's about 150 bottles um, 
under $150, I would say. That's that's the focus of the list is affordability. But also, um, I try to work with, with as many small growers and small farmers and wines that you would not have heard of. This is, I know there have been many articles this year about uh, flack being given to sommeliers that have lists that you can't find something you've heard of. I think I'm, I am at times guilty of that. I, I, I have two Chiantis. I try. I try, and put, I try and put things for everyone. But um, when you... I, the more the more that you work with wine, the more you understand that there these that there are people behind every bottle, and that there are families, and that there are stories. And if you if you drink that Kool Aid, you really you can't step away from it. So my wine list is a collection of friends, a collection of growers, a collection of farmers, um, and 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 you hope that that translates into something beautiful that adds to the experience, um, but also really goes with the food. Uh, La Conde Verde is not an, it's not a northern Italian restaurant. It's not a southern Italian restaurant. The dishes are very authentic to their place, but, uh, but many places in Italy are represented on that menu. And so you have to mirror that with a wine list that has wines, you know, from top to bottom of that boot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, since you brought it up, uh, you know, I think you're referencing Lee Campbell over at Reynard, who's just, I think I, I really love her <laughs> list. And um, I think even as someone in the wine industry, there's a ton of things on the list that you I know, wasn't naming names <laughs> <laughs> that, that, uh, you know, that, that are like these new discoveries. How do, how do you feel as, uh, as a beverage director about, about the, you know, that, those kind of articles or just in general about having a list that, that challenges the guests in a certain sure. way? Um, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to those articles. I, I really am. I have, I have friends in the real world. I understand the the necessity of having wines that appeal to to everyone, and it's it's a little bit unfair to have a list that's so geeky that um, that you are required to engage with a sommelier. I think you should be encouraged to, but not required to. So I know I know how easy it is to be to feel compelled to have a super geeky list, but I I am. I, I strive actively to put wines on there that are that would have mass appeal that would appeal to everybody. I think that we have some responsibility as as wine directors to to do that. Um, I don't think it has to be fifty percent of your list, though. I just think you have you know it would be it would be unfair if I didn't have a Barolo on my list or something like that. Right, you know, right. you have to have some recognition. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, but but personally, on our list, we draw the line with Pinot Grigio. There's no Pinot Grigio. On it. I have I have one Pinot Grigio, and I and I would call it you know quote a real Pinot Grigio. Okay, that that one is Veneca, and, and you know there's a, there's a small bit of skin maceration. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly yellow or white wine. Uh, it has that faint blush color. There's really aromatics. You know Pinot it's Grigio. Not thirty dollars, right? It's a little bit more expensive. I for think me. it's. 55. Right. Yeah. You know, it's still reasonable, but, um, it's not $30. It's a, it's our, one of our mid priced wines, but the, the big important thing for Pinot Grigio with me is Pinot Grigio is a Pinot, right? It's aromatic. So if, if the wine doesn't pop out of the glass with beautiful aromatics, it's not going to ever make the cut on the list. Like, I mean, do you find that guests are taken aback by a $55 Pinot Grigio that has a little bit of, a little bit of color and is flavorful as opposed to something that's really bland? It's, it requires a conversation mm-hmm. like anything else. You know, I think oftentimes that I've, I've had many experiences where people say it's the best Pinot Grigio they've ever had um, because people don't think that Pinot Grigio can be something of quality. And uh, Pinot Grigio is one of my favorite grapes. I mean, I, so I've as many hundreds of examples of, of watery Pinot Grigio that I could show you. I could show you dozens of beautiful examples of 
rich and interesting and aromatic Pinot Grigios. So as long as you're engaging with that guest, then mm-hmm. I think it's okay. But the $55 price point, yes, they may they may be more inclined to go for a, oh, I don't know, a Sylvaner that's, that's less expensive that they've not heard of and, and find that they enjoy that just as much. Well, I mean, I'm with you. I love the Venica Pinot Grigio. But I'm gonna. We're gonna off air have to challenge about the dozens of other exciting <laughs> Pinot Grigios. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know. So we participated in an interesting tasting together uh, with Mr. Alan Richmond from GQ magazine, That's and right. he had this uh, uh, preposterous idea that sommeliers couldn't tell whether <laughs> a wine was white or red. Uh, or where it was from, uh, if they were blindfolded. That <laughs> he was the only one that wasn't capable that day. <laughs> we had you and me and a couple other sommeliers, and we, you know, everyone. It was like double blind. It was like in a black glass, and we were all blindfolded. Mm-hmm. And it went. that was a hilarious day. I mean, I I understand because we we gave him totally unfair wines. We we gave him a, a skin fermented white wine that was quite tannic, and we gave him a you know. Very, very pale skinned, I don't know, is it a Beaujolais? I'm not remembering. But something that, that would have, you know, tricked the mind into being white. And we we gave ourselves more classic examples. I think we had a California Chardonnay and a French Pinot Noir. But I know there's something that triggers in my brain when you smell California Chardonnay. It was just not mistakable. There was I didn't I didn't need my eyes to, to detect that wine. Before I tasted it I knew what that one was. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, yeah. You know the the tasting. I guess we all chose wines for each other. That's true. Of course, true. that's and, right. And uh, we all, we all blind tasted, and it was, it was a little. You know, I, I got also got a California Chardonnay that had some oak tannin to it, and mm-hmm. I think that was the trick that was. That's supposed right. To happen. That was supposed to be the game there. The Pinot Noir being fruity being and fresh soft and, and fruity. soft, and but uh, but it wasn't that hard. <laughs> it wasn't that hard. <laughs> Sorry, Alan. <laughs> I just, I think, you just deserved a little, you know. Was, it was a it. fun game, and we were all nervous because no one wants to be the one, the one quote wine expert that uh, can't detect the French Burgundy. Well, other than uh, blindfolded tasting, how often do you participate in in blind tastings? Are you mm-hmm. you're studying for the WSET diploma right now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as much as I can, um, I I love to do blind tastings with my staff, but that but I'm I'm guiding them, so that's less. That's different, but um, I have a, I have a little group of women uh, in wine that we have we have our secret society of blind tasting. Um, so I you know I mean how bi-week, useful bi-weekly, how useful say. do you think this is? I mean if you're doing it biweekly, you must think that's pretty useful. If you I don't know mm-hmm. if you've had a chance to read Eric Asimov's book yet, he uh, he hates blind tasting. I know he, he goes uh, completely against it. I think blind tasting is useful. I've learned. I have learned things about myself through blind tasting. I don't think blind tasting is um, the only way to understand wine, but you learn things about yourself that way. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what I what I even mean by that. But um, maybe you say your favorite. In my mind, my favorite of all the white wines from Alsace is, is Riesling, and you start blind tasting, and lo and behold, that's not really your favorite, you know, or. You think that Gewürztraminer always does this, and and in fact, the last time you tasted a Gewürztraminer, you thought it was a Riesling, so maybe it doesn't always do this. Uh, you figure things out. I think when you know what you're tasting, you presuppose things. You you presuppose that certain wines have high acid, but if you're blind tasting them, they 
you you might not feel that way. So I don't know. I I think that's a good point. When uh, yeah, at, at this point, I'm sure that you can look at a, look at a wine uh, on a wine list or look at the bottle and have a good idea of what it might taste like. And so mm-hmm. then when you taste that, you're probably looking for those things sure. in the wine. Exactly. Um, and then when you blind taste, it's it's not coming with any of those. Uh, you know, any of those prejudgments and just having an open mind to what's in the glass. That's right. That's right. I think um, blind tasting uh, older wines is very interesting. You know, how you perceive age and how age is. Anyway, I think I think there is a usefulness to blind tasting. I don't think that you should blind taste all wine for enjoyment. You know, there's something to be said about just opening the bottle and and taking it at face value. But um it's an, it's an educational tool. Once it stops being that, then it's a parlor trick. So I think if you keep it in the context of trying to understand something about yourself and mm-hmm. how you taste, then it's useful. I, I, I agree with that. And, and I, I like it. I find it's also very educational. Uh, so you're going to – you have a big wedding coming up. I do have a big <laughs> Congratulations. wedding. Congratulations. Thank you very much. What are you going to be serving? Um, uh, well – Abigail Kirsch is the caterer, and she's wonderful. So the food is covered. I'm not the least bit nervous there. Um, the wines, the wines will be Italian. They are near and dear to my heart. And actually, there's a there's a funny story for how the wine, the featured wine of the day, is getting there. Um, oh, this must have been two or maybe three years ago. If you remember one of your winemaker dinners with, with Stefano Anama. Uh, at Lartuzzi. At Lartuzzi. Yeah. So I went to a winemaker dinner hosted at, at Lartuzzi, and sat next to the winemaker and really enjoyed his company that night and learned a tremendous amount. And um, it was the first time that I thought that suave could be serious. So that was very cool to taste really excellent suave. And, uh, and since then, the following fall, I went and participated in Harvest with Stefano and spent some time in the Veneto and really um, just fell in love with that area and the wines that they produce. And he has been quite a mentor to me in the last, you know, three years since I've known him. And so he is an honored guest at the wedding and we will be serving Anama no Suave <laughs> and his Carmignere, the Carmignere Pew with the little Merlot in there. So we'll be drinking his wines. <laughs> that's incredible. I absolutely that's love that right. story. Mm-hmm. And that is actually, that's your connection there. So Wow. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I just absolutely love that story. And uh, I, th- I feel like we our paths have crossed so many times over the years that, that we are uh, we are meant to be good friends, and uh, I'm looking forward to to joining you at the wedding and, and toasting you with the last Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I just wanted to thank you, Laura, so much for being on the show. I think that uh, you you have such a, a refreshing uh, approach to wine, and you're just absolutely one of the the sweetest, nicest, most down to earth people in the in the wine industry. And I think that um, you are a great ambassador for kind of our generation of of what service and hospitality and and what someone uh, what a wine person can be like and what the the best of of, of what we can do. So thank you so much for for doing that. Thank, thank you, you for so being much. on the show. My, my pleasure. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, just a reminder to check out heritageradionetwork.org and click donate if you want to become a member. Um, And this has been In the Drink on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.